0: DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. This is one of the best Prince stories I've ever heard. And it comes to us from his longtime engineer, Susan Rogers.
1: Prince was by his nature shy, and he preferred the company of one or two people than the company of a crowd. He, this, sounds, this sounds strange for a man who, was, you know, who could draw 60,000 people to the Superdome in New Orleans to, to come and see him, but he needed privacy, he needed to be protected from certain social engagements so that he could stay himself. So we were on the Purple Rain Tour and Prince had been nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, The album was taken off. The movie's doing great. He was on the cover of Rolling Stone. He was a big, big star. Now, typically, because Prince liked his privacy, he didn't want to hang around backstage after a show and do the meet and greet and the shaking hands. He did not want that kind of attention. He didn't like it. He was very uncomfortable with it. What he always wanted to do was either leave the stage. Purple Rain was always the last song. So he wanted to either leave the stage and go take a shower, change clothes and play an after party where he would play at a little club till five or six in the morning, or we'd go to a recording studio. That's what we did every night because we were working on Sheila E.'s album. We were working on Ice Cream Castle. We were working on, on records. But this one night in Los Angeles, his management told him, not tonight. You can't do it. You have to do the thing you hate to do, which is you have to come backstage afterward and you have to see these celebrities. These are the people who've nominated you for an Academy Award. These are the people who want to see you. And oh, by the way, Elizabeth Taylor is going to be there. There's some big, big, big celebrities here. You have to stay backstage afterward. And Prince agreed. Now at the time I was his I was his full-time employee so I was on tour with them and I was uh his technician I would be recording in a mobile truck which I think I was doing that night uh, if if we had a mobile truck there otherwise I'm on stage left for the drum machine. So I'm there and I'm recording the show and my sweetheart my my former boyfriend the technician John Sacchetti the one who told me about the job with Prince who essentially got me this job old John Sacchetti from uh, Boston Massachusetts was there and he was waiting to see me his girl. I'd managed to get him a comp ticket and, uh, John was really, really excited. You know, he got to see this Prince show.
0: And you described John to me as a musical genius. Like, just, he just knew everything about the tech of music.
1: John was an electronics genius. He was a designer. He got a patent for a digital telephone in the early 1980s. John was a self-taught genius from Quincy, Massachusetts. But John was from a, a Italian family in a rough and tumble neighborhood of Quincy, Massachusetts. So he had this really strong Boston accents. And he would uh, he would say, Sue, uh, Sue, you, when he told me about the, print, the Prince job, your, your dream job is waiting for you, Sue. Your dream job. <laughs> Prince needs a technician, Sue. That was John sacchetti and he would say, like, hospital instead of hospital, and Mayan instead of mine. And Prince absolutely loved him. He had come out to help me out a few times out in Minnesota. Prince adored him, because John was a genius with electronics, but John was just a, a, a funny kid. And... And uh, and a good man with a heart of pure gold.
0: John was about the work. Like, oh, Prince totally. was about the work. And right? He doesn't want to be at this meet and greet. He wants to work. Right. right? And that's what John was about. These
1: are, these are working class people. Prince, uh, John Sacchetti, myself, we came from lower middle class backgrounds. Our parents worked for a living and struggled. And uh, it, the, the, that's what we know. You know, the television show Roseanne is, was popular in the 90s and is gaining popularity again now. Those are our people. Uh, the, the Good people, smart, honest, hardworking people. But life is a struggle for 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 many of us who work really hard. Anyway, that's the cloth we're cut from. So poor Prince, from this this background, is going to have to go backstage afterwards, and he's going to have to stand there and try to talk to Elizabeth Taylor and all these other celebrities. So the scene was, um, show is finished, Prince is backstage, and in the green room back there, the room is packed with many, many Hollywood celebrities, including Elizabeth Taylor and Prince. And Elizabeth Taylor and Prince are having this conversation. I imagine it was pretty one-sided. They're (laughs) surrounded by bodyguards, and you can kind of imagine that all of these Hollywood folks who are in this room are probably holding their breath and pinching themselves, recognizing that at this moment, they are backstage with two of the biggest celebrities in the world right now, the iconic Elizabeth Taylor and this hot rock star, Prince. And there they are. And everyone in this room must have been thinking, I'm doing great, because look at me, I'm backstage with these people. But there was one person in that room who didn't see what everyone else saw. And that person was John Sicchetti. He was there at the the green room. He was waiting for his girlfriend. He's waiting for Sue to finish up wrapping up the cables and putting the tapes away. And John saw something that other people didn't see. John saw a brother in trouble. He saw Prince standing there almost, I'm no doubt, catatonic, while this woman in a white mink coat and diamond earrings, whose shoes are worth more than John's whole life... Having a conversation, so John threw himself on the on the sword. John uh, went in and saved a brother. John, who was a, a very uh, avid and enthusiastic drug user, John elbowed himself in between Elizabeth Taylor and Prince. And John stood with his back to Elizabeth Taylor and got right up in Prince's face, because this was the Boston way. This is just what you do with a brother. And he just got right up in Prince's face, and John was there elbowing Prince, and he'd go, Yo, Prince, man, woo! The show was wicked awesome! Woo! Prince, yo, man, yo! And when John, he was kind of tall and thin, and he he looked a little bit like uh, a young John Travolta, and he would stand over you with that thick accent, and he had a beer in his hand, and he's saying, Yo, Prince, the show was awesome! Yo, I dropped two tabs of acid before the show. The show, I, I smoked a big split. I was drinking beer out of my eyes. Prince, that show, dee 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 lili lili dee. There was way too awesome. Woo! And that was Prince's escape. So Prince's bodyguard Gilbert Davidson was able to grab Prince and say, "Come on, you know, sorry, Elizabeth, who let this nutcase backstage? Sorry, we got to go." So they grab Prince and they get out of there. And I can imagine—I wasn't there, but I can imagine. That the whole room must have been thinking, who let this person in and why did he ruin our good time? This crude, uncouth (laughs) ruffian. (laughs) Well, anyway, I heard about this story from Prince. Prince told me the story afterward, after we were off the road. He told me that story, laughing about it. And he said, man, he said, that guy saved me. I love that guy. Prince was smart enough to know. John took a bullet for him because John just saw he saw Prince as Prince was. He He, saw a kid who didn't want to be in that situation. And John knew how to save him.
0: Who would rather be talking to John the tech, who knows about music, than having some small talk with Elizabeth Taylor.
1: Yeah, but John could see that that Prince was uncomfortable, and that he needed a savior. And I I asked John about that afterward. I said, what was that all about? How come you didn't tell me? He says, oh, man, he says, I saw a brother in trouble. I just had to help him out. I I love that, that John saw that prince liked being around people who saw him for that he didn't want to be around people who saw him as a celebrity he needed people who saw him as a working man he needed people who facilitated his work that's what he was all about was the work not the money or the fame or the celebrity
0: i love that story Prince wasn't close to anybody, really, but he let some people in, especially if they could connect to him via music. In the early 80s, Susan Rogers was a young music engineer in L.A. who heard through the grapevine that Prince, the man who had made Dirty Mind, a hot young musician she loved, who was smart and edgy, but hadn't quite broken all the way out just yet, that guy was looking for an engineer... She got the job and moved to Minneapolis and began working on what would come to be called Purple Rain. Susan worked with Prince through his zenith, often alone in the studio with him as he worked his way through a song a day. She saw him moving through his creative process in the studio, and she says each of his albums sprang from one song that was like the seed for all the rest. Today she talks about the seeds of each of Prince's major albums and what was on his mind when he was making them. Susan is a high school dropout who became a professor of music production and engineering at the Berklee School of Music in Massachusetts. She's perfect to talk to about Prince because she's an intellectual who knows music and she's a woman who knows what Prince is like in the studio because she was there. Prince would have turned 60 last week. And we all still miss him. So I went to Berkeley to talk to my friend Susan about what it was like to work with Prince. It's Susan Rogers on Tore Show.
1: I first met him as his employee. I was interviewed through Westlake Audio in Hollywood, and then I was hired by Prince's management. Prince came off the 1999 tour, and he told his managers that um, he needed a technician, and he specifically asked for someone from New York or Los Angeles because the local Minnesota Folks, uh, there, there would be fewer of those people who knew the pro audio industry. So Prince knew that he was just getting ready to make this movie and make this album that could make or break his career. He needed a, a tech at his side who uh, really knew really knew what they were doing at the pro audio level. So I was in Los Angeles and I was kind of recruited. Uh, that's that's how I got hired. I moved from California out to Minnesota and um, went straight to work. Met Prince. On the job.
0: On the I mean, yeah, it was always on the job. It was constantly making music, right? I mean, every waking moment was to be making music.
1: When, if Prince was, Prince, is, well, I mean, let me back up. His his way of being in the world was to express himself musically. It's well established that he wasn't a big talker. He uh, he was verbal. He was erudite. He was smart, and he was communicative. But he preferred not to talk with words. He preferred to play, which is why uh, we we'd do a big arena show, and after a show, he'd go play an after party because he wants to be with people. He's social. He wants to hang out, but he doesn't want to be engaged in conversation with people. He wants to be playing, so he would wake up in the morning. If he woke up in the morning, sometimes it'd be afternoon or middle of the night, depending on what time we finished the day before. But uh, take a few business calls, uh, talk to his operations manager, Alan Leeds, or Karen Krattinger, or his house manager, Sandy Cipioni, and then and then it was he would have an instrument in his hand, and then it was music from there on out.
0: I mean, it was usually wake up and write down the lyrics from the dream. Right, or the melody from the dream and go run sometimes it right away
1: sometimes sometimes that was a luxury if he could if he could afford to do that, and that was often on the weekends because I noticed that he took business calls a lot in the in the morning, so when we were at home, when we're in Minnesota, um California, where his management is, they're going to be uh two hours. Uh, ahead. So he's he's going to take a few calls in the morning and remember this man is a is a multimillionaire at the point in the 80s when I worked for him. He's got a lot of employees. He's going to have to be engaged with people to keep his empire running. But he got that stuff out of the way. Uh he would he would come into the studio sometimes with lyrics but not always. Songs that ultimately became pop songs or ballads the lyrics and the melody would be written first. He would often write at the piano. So he'd have one of those spiral notebooks, a school notebook at the piano, and he would write in pencil or pen, scratch the lyrics out. I know that there are copies of his lyrics floating around now among collectors. And you can see that the words came out straight onto the page in that kind of loopy, floral handwriting style that he had and sometimes he would scratch out words or phrases and then replace them but you see when he scratches things out he scribbles over it completely so that no one could see what What the wrong words were underneath so he doesn't he doesn't prince rarely looked back he rarely said i'm sorry prince always looked forward past is past he looked forward. And the same thing with his lyric writing. So he would sometimes come into the studio with a lyric. But if it was dance, funk stuff, he'd start with the rhythm, we'd do drum machine and bass. And then, and then after the track was basically the rhythm and the chord changes, maybe, maybe not a melody, but rhythm and chord changes, then he could, um, take that, a cassette of that, go out to the car. He liked to write in the car and take his notebook and, um, and write his lyrics in the car and then come back and we'd finish up the track.
0: I think it's really interesting to do one song a day and to do it fully from beginning to end. And it seems potentially an aid to your creativity to just be focused on one thing and just let it all out and just go. I mean, musicians don't generally do a song a day. They don't generally do a song from beginning to end, right?
1: Yeah, it can be an aid. It can also be an encumbrance because you're, think of it like a sculptor. Um, if a sculptor takes a blob of clay and decides he's not going to leave this blob of clay until he has his sculpture. Mm-hmm. It means that that microscope is dialed all the way in. It means that he's spending all his time working on the local details. Mm -hmm. And he's trusting in his process enough that when he steps back from that and views it from the way the audience is going to view it, that he's got the proportions right and that this is actually a viable sculpture. It's a good work of art. The the way most people work is to take their time, and they're constantly dialing the microscope in, looking at the local details of what they're doing, the detail of that arm or that leg on this sculpture – and then zooming back and asking themselves, is the pose right? Are the proportions right? Are the dimensions right? Or in the case of music, what is this likely to be? What is this going to be? And should we change it now while we have the chance? Prince was so confident in his artistry that he can push forward. And every one of his songs can be a gesture sketch. I'm using a different metaphor now, but he's not doing detailed... um well, he's, he's doing detailed work that he is confident will, um, will become a, a valid and valuable entity. You have to really understand music. You have to really understand arrangement and writing in order to be able to do that. Most artists don 't encompass his set of skills, so most artists have a producer, so the producer can be looking at the work with the microscope dialed back from the big picture perspective while the artist focuses on the details and Sometimes an artist will even hire an arranger here, program these drums for me, and then give me a track, and then i 'll take it from there that 's very common these days, so uh, the artist isn 't even encountering the track until it 's half done. Uh, very few artists had that skill set. A lot of artists would do what Michael Jackson and so many others did, is you'd hire the best session musicians because you've got your ideas. Here's here's the song, here's how it goes. But I want to hear Greg Fillingain's on it or I want to hear Bootsy Collins on it. I want to hear these other artists' musical minds. And Think of Wu-Tang Clan and these groups that have a lot of musical minds will take one idea and you'll stretch it. You'll fan it out so that it's representative of a lot of people. Prince was so confident that his singular musical mind could create great works that weren't too uh, incestuous, that didn't smell too much like themselves, that uh, he he pushed forward with that. You're not going to find many examples of people who can do that and get away with it.
0: No, I mean, it's extraordinary the breadth of talents and the different... Uh, G- genres or styles that he's able to play in an extraordinary level. I mean, talk about what you saw as the breadth of gifts that he had, right? Oh. I mean, there's so many.
1: It's just kind of hard, especially after 35 years. It's kind of hard to believe that that was real. At the time, it just seemed like, okay, this is what we're doing. Of course, you yeah, know, this is what you do, this is how it's done. But looking at it now, How many people have that genius with rhythm? Rhythm is harder than it looks. To program a drum machine or play a drum kit, think of the song, Tambourine. Like, think think of that drum track. When Prince played the drum track on Tambourine, he's playing the drums on a song with no accompaniment. There are no other instruments there. So he has to have the arrangement in his head as he's playing this three and a half minute piece really funky drum part and what's he doing when he's there programming a drum machine and he knows where to put the brakes where he knows where, uh, how he knows where to put the fills of course he's counting along any musician would do that you're counting bars seven two three four eight two three four and then what when you go into the chorus then what Is it going to be a fill? Is it going to be a break? Is it going to drop? Is it going to go up in energy? Is it going to go down? It's a lot easier when you have other musicians providing their parts and you can play off each other. He's playing off the other musicians in his head. So when he's done putting down these drums, listen to the man on bass. It's just so hard for me to try to convince my students that what they're hearing from the 1980s is music that hasn't been quantized or pitch corrected or altered in any way. This music this performance went from the man's hands to his instrument to tape who plays that well on that many instruments and because when he's done with bass and he was one of the world's great bass players he's that good on guitar and he's that good on piano And on organ? Oh, and we're not done yet. Let's put up a vocal mic. I mean, come on. How many men have that chest voice and that falsetto and can give you that soul preacher vocal without ruining his voice? He never developed vocal nodes. He never destroyed his voice. And yet, he could scream like any punk or rock artist, and he could scream like any gospel preacher. He could croon like Al Green, Who's got that range? Now, on top of that, what's the material we're working on here? The material he wrote. He did very few covers. How, how do you do that? And then, let's consider this. When you're sitting there, you've got your basic track done. By basic track, I mean your bass, your drums, your your main keyboard pads, your guitars, your melody. You're sitting there with your keyboards all around you. What's the melody going to be on? Should it be on organ? Should it be on piano? Electronic piano or acoustic piano? Should this be done with acoustic guitar or electric guitar? Should the electric guitar be clean or should it be distorted? Uh, what's the solo going to be? Piano solo? Or is it going to be guitar solo? Clean guitar solo or distorted? That's arrangement. Will there be horns on it? Is it going to be just Eric leads by himself on saxophone, or is it going to be uh, is it going to be flute? Is it going to be trumpet? And what are those instruments going to say? How are they going to embellish the overall message? Well, that's arrangement. Um, he's making these decisions like a Quincy Jones or like any great producer would do. And then on top of that, you're thinking of the marketplace. What What's going to be popular? I mean, you don't let that drive you, but you have to consider, is this going to work? And you're thinking about the critics. What will they write about me when I write a lyric like, if I was your girlfriend, would you let me dress you? I mean, help you pick out your clothes before we go out? That's pretty risky.
0: We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door... Thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. I mean, even at that point in the career, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, that -hmm. that wasn't that risky at that stage, because we already knew who he was. But when he's talking about uh, having sex with his sister early on, and we don't yet know who he is, we're not yet used to him as uh, saying these sexually shocking things, that, it was that, to me, was really, really risky.
1: That was the genius move of his career. So most artists... Sister? well, the, the Dirty Mind album. Mm. Um, most artists start by imitating the artists of the day. That, mm-hmm. that you, you start by woodshedding. The Beatles did it. Sly Stone did it. You, 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 you hone your skills by imitating the artists of the day. And then if you truly are an artist yourself, if there's any original thought in you, you won't actually be able to copy other people because your own original artistry is going to bubble through and it's going to work against you. So he did with the uh, For You album and with the Prince album, he's imitating the styles of the day, but it was clear that there was an artist there because um, When You Were Mine and I Want to Be Your Lover are showing that one, he can write, and two, that he's got a unique voice. You can feel him pulling against the constraints of popular R&B in the late 70s, early 80s. So you know what's going to happen. Um, he he jumped the cue by deciding with the Dirty Mind album I'm done imitating. And I'm going to overshoot the mark. I'm going to pick up one of the three important audiences, the three audiences being the general public, other musicians, and the critics and scholars. I'm not going to worry about radio play. So I'm not going to worry about the public thinks of me. I don't care about other musicians at this point. They'll come around eventually and they'll respect me. I'm going for the critics and scholars. I'm going to make a critical masterpiece that's going to get me attention. The general public gives you love. Other musicians give you respect, but it's the critics, the writers, the scholars who give you fame. And he was going for fame. So he did an artwork that would get him attention from the scholars and the critics. And that's exactly what happened. And you can hear it on the on the fourth album on Controversy when he talks about all the critics love you in New York. Mm-hmm. The critics loved him in New York, and they loved him in Los Angeles. They loved him in London and Paris. Now he had a a hold. He had gained purchase on the music industry. So now people are going to watch him. The spotlight of attention is on him, which set him up for the Controversy record. Mm -hmm. And and it was aptly titled Controversy. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. And uh, and Purple Rain, which was the first album that you worked on with him, Mm -hmm. this was a clear gesture of... Now we're going for the masses.
1: Yeah, it took a minute. So after Dirty Mind, he goes for the Controversy album, and he's saying, yeah, I am an enigma. Yeah, I am controversial. But this is the street I live in. I think he, he uh, was really finding his voice, the voice that would sustain him for a number of years on the Controversy record. If you remember the song Controversy with that drum machine, that's Prince. That's Prince. He put a finer point on it, and he integrated his pop writing Talents, on the 1999 album, and he, it paid off. He had his first crossover Billboard Hot 100 single, with uh, "Little Red Corvette." He's showing I'm a pop artist who plays in the style of funk, and so all of those those previous five albums set him up for either success or failure with his next move. Now, if the next move, if Purple Rain hadn't been a masterpiece, if his next album after 1999 had been a disappointment. He'd still be regarded as great. Mm-hmm. But for him to climb up this, make this steep ascent and cap it off with a masterpiece was rare and extraordinary.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, you've talked before about there are albums. I think a lot of people who started listening to music in the last 20 years may not realize there's a difference between an album and a collection of songs that are <laughs> fitting together on something that mm-hmm. you might call an album um but it's a cohesive musical statement it's not the 10 best or the 10 most right. recent songs you've made they make a statement about who you are in the world what you feel about your genre your music what you feel about music in general and he was doing that and uh, you have talked before about there were certain songs that became seeds and I would like you, as we go through the records that you worked on, to help us understand what were the seeds of each of those albums, so how they fanned out. Yeah. So Purple Rain?
1: The song Purple Rain was certainly the cornerstone, a core song on on, on that album.
0: And that was done before you came on?
1: Uh yes. Yeah, I was hired in July of 1983. Uh but I was in Hollywood so I had to pack up everything I owned and I had to move uh to Minnesota. So it was my birthday on August 3rd, 1983 when they did the now famous show at First Avenue and my friends threw me a going away party uh and uh, and, and then I left I think the next day uh in August to come to come out to Minnesota. So the basic tracks had been done live for I would die for you baby I'm a star which were also cornerstone songs on that album and the basic track had been done for purple rain as well it'd been written but what what happened was at First Avenue that night the band played live and it was all recorded by David Z David Rivkin in a mobile recording truck out there in the parking lot so when you have those basic tracks what we could do what we did with Prince is we took the tapes from that show back to the house his home studio and or out to Sunset Sound, and we continued overdubbing on them. Typically, a live record is going to sound like a live record because there are so many acoustic sources on stage. There are, there are live drums, which means it's going to be half a dozen or more microphones on stage picking up the live drums but when you're working with drum machine and that source is electronic there aren't that many open mics on stage so you can um, mute the vocal mics and you've got um, you've got the gist of the album clean without any bleed through from the audience so you can you can do you can change the vocals and you can add more uh, embellishments on top of it and it's and it it sounds like a studio album, but essentially that, those tracks were live.
0: I mean, when you talk about Purple Rain as a seed for the song Purple Rain as a seed for the album, what does that mean?
1: Well, an album, as you correctly said, is regarded by many people as that's the work we're doing. We're making an album, You're not thinking so much about singles. You're thinking about an album, which was in the days of vinyl. That's a 35 minute story. It's like a television episode. Mm-hmm. This is this is our story, and it's 35 minutes long. Singles, you hope, will emerge from that. That seems strange today, because today the emphasis is on just right singles, and when we have enough of them, we'll put them together and we'll call it an album. But back in those days, we made albums first and singles later. So when you're making an album... Uh, let's, take, let's say let's just speak, speak specifically of Prince. When Prince is making an album, he knows that that album is going to be supported by a tour, and there is going to be a color scheme and a look that accompanies it. He's going to dress a certain way. And Purple Rain was obviously purple, and Around the World in a Day was kind of a rainbow palette. And he returned to black and white with the Parade album. So there'll be a color scheme. There'll be a look. It's going to be a worldview and a statement. Most people set out to make an album with a plan in mind, a plan of um, what they want to say. Because Prince was writing constantly, that plan emerged from how he was feeling. So he'd be writing, 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 until he wrote a few songs where he realized, this is it, this is what I want to say, I'm going to build an album around these two or three songs. So the seed of an album for him would be the songs that he wanted to release as his statement. This is who I am. This is how you should know me. This is what I look like. This is what I'm thinking right now. And this is what matters to me right now. So Purple Rain was the seed, the main seed of the of the album and the movie Purple Rain. Uh, but other songs that were important on that record included Let's Go Crazy, Let's. He's talking about us. Let us, now there is an us because he's got a lot of followers. Hey, us, let's do this. Here's what we think. Here's what we believe.
0: And there's a relationship there, too, between the ecstatic uh, club or dance musical moment and the religious ecstatic uh, ecstatic moment.
1: Yes, Prince uh, grew up in... A household that was infused with religious beliefs. I don't know if, um, how much they went to church. I don't, I don't know that, but I know that his father was religious and be- carried and Seventh believed in, in the Bible, right? So Prince had this dichotomy between Sin and salvation, and the 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 guilt that comes along with knowing that you enjoy earthly pleasures, when perhaps some part of your consciousness might suggest to you you probably shouldn't be doing that.
0: And, and this is a classic tension in black music, going back mm. Marvin Gaye and many, many Curtis May, many, many, many before.
1: Yeah, you're almost asking yourself and maybe you're asking your audience to forgive you please for these transgressions of the flesh. So every time he would do a song that was just unadulterated, unabashed, unapologetic lust like on Darling Nikki, as soon as that song was finished, he'd have to ask for forgiveness. And that's where you get those those segue pieces, the little piece of backwards music and and that's where uh, those songs would often trans Transition into something where he would express his devotion and his piety, and, and maybe kind of ask for redemption or yeah. salvation.
0: Yeah, those that those two things. So often, the hypersexual songs devolve into some spiritual message. Yes. It almost feels like the spiritual message is so deep within him that he can't stop it from coming out, even when he's doing his most sexual. Conversation.
1: I think a lot of his spiritual devotion in the time that I knew him came from gratitude. I think he felt
0: for, gratitude for
1: gratitude that he had achieved success. I think he was grateful to God, his his concept of God. I think he was grateful. And I think he felt endorsed and approved of. And I think he felt loved.
0: So let me take a break for a second and tell you about two books that I love that are really important to me. The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander is the best public policy book I have ever read. It blew my mind. It's extremely well written. And it takes you so deep into what the war on drugs really is and is doing to America and how it's been shaped and formed and how it operates. It's an extraordinary book that will blow your mind. But the corollary to that, that you've also got to read, is Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari, which will give you even more insight into the war on drugs and how it's being waged from a different side of the whole thing. I love these two books, The New Jim Crow and Chasing the Scream. If you want to read them in hardcover or paperback, that's cool. But sometimes it's cool to listen to books. And that's why Audible asked me to talk to you about some books that I love, because they help you listen to more books by letting you switch seamlessly between devices. You can pick up exactly where you left off, from your phone to your car to your tablet or at home on the Amazon Echo. You can get through tons of books while doing almost anything. Audible members get a credit every month good for any audiobook in the store, regardless of price and unused credits Roll over to the next month so you don't lose them. If you don't like your audiobook, you can exchange it, no questions asked, and your books are yours to keep with Audible. You can go back and re-listen anytime, even after you cancel your membership. You can get a 30-day trial and your first audiobook free if you go to audible.com toure, T-O-U-R-E, audible.com e. audible.com/toure it gave me my own URL, audible.com/tore. Go there, get a free audiobook and a 30-day trial, or you can text Tore T O U R E. You can text my name to 500500, 500, Right, text my name Tore to 500-500 to get started. You can listen to almost any book ever made. It's a pretty awesome deal. Check out the new Jim Crow and Chasing the Scream, two incredible books about the war on drugs, blew my mind, but blow yours too. So that was Purple Rain Prince. Mm-hmm. So you go into Around the World in a Day, which I always thought was about the Beatles in the 60s, and Susanna said no. So what is the seed of Around the World in a Day?
1: I think... It was inspired by the records that Susanna was playing for Prince, which included Led Zeppelin and included The Beatles, because Prince didn't listen to that growing up. I think those things inspired him. But most of Around the World in a Day was completed before we ever went on the Purple Rain tour. It is my favorite of the records we did together because it was the last time he was innocent. This was Prince before Prince. So while he's making Around the World Today, a Day, for the most part, we were at home in the warehouse. This is before Paisley Park is built. So we're at home in Minnesota, getting ready for this movie to come out, getting ready for the Purple Rain album to be released, preparing and rehearsing for a big tour. And um, this could have gone either way. A semi-autobiographical movie about your life, this could kill your career because you're 24, you're 25 years old. Maybe the critics won't like it. Maybe your R&B soul audience won't like this big rock ballad that you've just did that done that is reminiscent of Journey or Bob Seger. Maybe they won't like it. Maybe this won't work. But Prince was happier and more optimistic than, than I ever saw him. After that, after the Purple Rain, everything changed. But while we were making Around the World in a Day, he was happy and he was still Innocent, he was still a kid, so songs like "Raspberry Beret" and "Pop Life" and "Around the World in a Day" itself have an exuberance about them that's easily felt. The latter has that gratitude that I spoke of. Uh, "Tambourine" has has uh, an unabashed admission of uh, self satisfaction of masturbation. That's what that song is all about. And condition of the heart is one of my favorites because it's one of his most honest lyrics. Prince rarely admitted that he was in pain. Rarely, rarely, rarely. When we were on tour, if if he was sick, he would just take Dayquil, that over-the-counter cough medicine, and he'd go on stage. He didn't want to admit that he was hurting. But on Condition of the Heart, he's saying, a sometimes lonely musician, he was hurt. He he was hurt. And 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 what a what a vulnerable moment for him. Those moments were rare so that's a, that's perhaps my favorite album
0: mm so so, what song do you think was the? See.
1: Certainly around the world today, a day. Uh, it the title was, song. The, it was written by Jonathan Melvoin and David Coleman, who were the brothers of Wendy and, um, Susanna and Lisa, the Colemans and the Melvoins. These kids had known each other since they were very young. So they, um, came out to visit their sisters out in Minnesota. They brought this song. Prince loved it. And we cut the song at rehearsal with the whole band on stage, including David and Jonathan. Um, uh the the message in this record was there is an us we have created a world the purple rain is about is one man's masterpiece and it's about one man's most artistic thoughts although other musicians played on it it's 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 close to being a solo album as close as as you might consider for a solo artist. It really is a solo album. It's one man's masterwork. But on Around the World in a Day, after you've conquered yourself, what do you want to do? You want to conquer the world. And you want to be able to say um, the world that I'm creating, folks, includes all of us. And we're all different colors. And we're all different ages. And look at the cover and you can see that. We have different abilities and disabilities. We come from different backgrounds. We um, might be we might take drugs. We might not. We might um, be bold. We might be shy. There. This is an us. And that's why the rainbow color palette. And that's why around the world in a day.
0: How did you make sure through these 24-hour sessions and this intense outpouring of music and that you personally were at your best all the time to be able to take care of this difficult employer and I don't mean I don't mean that yet interpersonally but just it's I mean you're working 24-hour days you know day after day after day there's so much output like how do you make sure that you are at your best to take care of him
1: you know Tori I don't think I I thought about myself um I don't think I thought about what I needed or or what was good for me. I was a soldier who had a job to do. I think that was the mentality. Like, this was important, and this needs to happen. And I felt very much a part of the machinery that was us. We need to get these records made. We need to get this tour off the ground. We need to facilitate this man's work. I was his hands, and I was a knowledge base that he didn't have. So I, I knew the engineering... And the the audio technical skills that he, he didn't know, and I could facilitate him um, I could facilitate his work. I could be part of this assembly line that got all this work done. I didn't think about what I needed. It was really rare for me to have a day off. And I knew that I, I had to stay well like anybody else. I got sick from time to time, but I did what he did. I took the DayQuil. I drank a lot of water, brushed my teeth. Brushing your teeth is a great way to fake your body into thinking that it's it's morning or that you've just woken up. <laughs> I, um, a, An act of will is what kept me going. And the gratitude and love for I was very grateful to have that job and and I loved the work we were doing and and um, there was nowhere else I'd rather be like a good soldier I I I didn't want to let down the team
0: and you talked about that he he loved being able to provide for the team right and like we put bread on people's tables right
1: yeah he had a great working man's ethic I don't know how the man did it I don't know how you go from being a poor kid suddenly being a multimillionaire in your early 20s and having employees, many employees who are older and more experienced than you. In fact, I think most, if not everybody, was older than he was, at least a little bit. Most of us were in our 20s. Wendy was a little bit younger, but we're kids. But there were some folks like Alan Leeds, you know, who'd been around, Craig Rice and some of the others. And um, Prince was a great leader because he was willing to not be loved. He once said, the only asshole around here is me. And he meant it. He was the asshole. He was the leader. He was the one who made the hard decisions. He was the one who cared more about the work we were doing than about us as individuals. He loved us, and we loved him, but he truly embraced leadership. Um And as I mentioned earlier, he he constantly rolled forward. This train didn't stop for... Uh, for anyone who might uh, need it to slow down. It didn't stop. You'd have to keep up.
0: I mean, he was he was difficult at times.
1: <laughs> the work was difficult. The work was difficult. He was difficult in that he was an enigma, that he wouldn't complain and he wouldn't explain. He wouldn't tell you why. His decision was final. That, that was one of the joys of it. It I taught me a lot about leadership. Uh, leadership, I mean, the main thing you have to do is lead. You have to take charge and you have to make decisions. And uh, he he was good at it. And that's what he did. So uh, it, the work was, was punishing and difficult. It was also very, very rewarding. And he was good to us. It, there were times, occasionally, I would do three days in a row. One On one special occasion, I did four days in a row, 96 hours. But, but 48 hours was not uncommon. And 24 was actually quite common. And it, But when you did those exceptional days, those those 48-hour days, there'd be a little something extra in your paycheck. And that that was his way of saying thank you.
0: You you sitting in the studio for forty eight straight hours. Oh yeah, was common.
1: Fairly common, yeah. No, common was twenty four hours, but not uncommon was um, was forty eight.
0: I, I would think at some point you would get delirious.
1: You do a little bit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: so much fun. Like you gotta you've got to think about this. So. Imagine you're in the studio. You've been in Sunset Sound with Prince for 24 hours. You've just done something amazing. You know it's going to get heard. Work is really difficult when it's unrewarded or when it's done um, out of sight of others, when it's thankless work, when you've just built an airport or a hospital and your job was just to hang the screens or just to do the cement columns and no one's going to thank you or or praise you. That's really hard. But when you've just done a song that you know millions of people are going to listen to, that's some pretty good fuel That mm. that that gives you um, energy And it, 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 it's a little bit thrilling So let's say you've just finished at 6 o'clock in the morning Sun's coming up You're kind of delirious You're wrapping cables You're uh, filling out the tape box labels And uh, he goes and brushes his teeth And he turns around He comes back in And he says fresh tape <laughs> Fresh tape meaning I've got a song in my head We're going again and as you know, if if he starts a song, he won't leave the studio until it's finished. So you just know we've got another 24 to go. And it would make me laugh with, with joy and with the excitement of knowing, come on, let's do this. Let's do this. Um, it, it was pretty thrilling. Personally, I found it thrilling. Uh,
0: d- just give me a, a sense of this. 24 hours to make one song. Mm-hmm. So how long would the drum take? how long would the guitar take how generally how long would the vocal part take
1: well drums might happen in an in an hour or so uh, because as we're as he's dialing in the pattern we're also dialing in sounds the uh, mix was coming together as the record is coming together which is unusual typically mixing is a, a totally separate stage but mixing occurred simultaneously with the tracking so As the drums are coming up and he's programming the drum machine, he alone knows what this song ultimately will be. But I'm on the console and I I can change reverbs or I can ask him if he wants something long or short on on those reverbs or if he wants delay or if he wants a lower kick drum or something kind of higher. So I'm EQing and I'm shaping sounds for him as this is all coming together. So an hour... Maybe, maybe an hour and a half, and it could be shorter, but you know, if you want to change it up a little bit, you'll spend a little bit of time with it. Base... In a four minute song, uh, I would have the bass ready for him after the drums were finished. So he'd pick up the bass as long as it's in tune and we have the tone that, that he's happy with, as long as it takes him to play it, basically. Now, sometimes he's gonna, we're gonna rewind the tape and he's gonna go back because he's changed his mind about certain sections. Uh, he's changed his mind about parts, but there was never stop and wait for this guy to play this right. No, that never happened. (laughs) He was such an expert. He was, um, you'd mentioned Michael Jordan, uh, playing basketball, uh, in another podcast. He, he was as good as it gets. So anything he can imagine in his mind's ear, he can play. So bass, let's, let's say 45 minutes, half an hour, more of that time is spent on manipulating the tone and the part. Certainly the playing is, the execution is going to be perfect.
0: The execution is going to be, he's going to play it, what, once or twice?
1: No, you go through in series, in serial, so this was on tape, so you just start playing at the top, and if he makes a mistake, I'm watching his face, he's sitting across from me, he has the bass, if he makes a mistake, I'm going to know it, he's going to make a, he's going to stop, or he's going to make a gesture with his body, we roll back, I've been following along, so... Uh, unless he tells me otherwise i'm going to roll back just a few bars play along and then we're going to punch in at the place where the mistake happened so as he's playing i'm in i'm listening and i'm encoding these parts mentally so that i can follow along and keep track of how this arrangement is coming together so that i can as i said earlier be his hands and facilitate what he needs done. He needs the tape machine to roll back so that we can we can punch in and fix the mistake. And then when we punch in he might change the part. He might change what happens in this spot or maybe he just uh, uh, played a wrong note. Uh, maybe he wants to go for a harmony instead of the root note or something. So he'll he'll go back and he'll change his he'll change he's, his feel.
0: He's not a perfectionist. He's moving very fast.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Is it
0: best thought first thought best thought sort
1: of thing? Sometimes but not always. So it depended on what, it, de- it depended on what this, on the song's function. So sometimes these songs, I'm thinking of like the funk songs, like Dance Electric or uh, Data Bank. It's just fun. It's fun stuff to dance to. The lyric doesn't have to be deep, doesn't have to be meaningful, It doesn't have to reflect any new position or thought going on in his world. Data Bank feeling like I want to put you in my data bank. Dance the Dance Electric. <laughs> it's a fantasy. These lyrics popped out of him like a gesture sketch very easily. So in that case, we just have fun with it. This is a man exercising his craft, and the finished work is craft. But art is original thought. So when he had a song like Sign of the Times, or a song like Pop Life, or a song like You Got the Look, where he's really trying to say, okay, you know all all that other stuff I was playing? That's all fun to dance to, but I want you to notice me now. I want you to listen to me. When the focus is going to be on the words, the arrangement, think of it like a frame or, or on a picture. You have to frame those lyrics so that the listener's attention goes where you want it to go, so that they hear what you want them to hear. Um, so that that takes a little bit more time.
0: Parade. What was the seed of that?
1: That was... Um, There were a couple of seeds. Uh, Inspiration came when he went to South America. His manager, Stephen Farnoli, took him to Rio, I guess. And he came back uh, very inspired with the steel drum. He came back very inspired and did, um, did, around the, uh, rather did, uh, Under the Cherry Moon and New Position. And um, what are the other four songs? There was Christopher Tracy's Parade. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking the first four songs on. uh, I Wonder You, of course. Yeah, that's the one that slipped my mind. So the tone there was one that was a little bit more worldly and a little bit mm-hmm. uh ready to grow up a little bit lyrically he wasn't a boy anymore this mm-hmm. is this is a man a man who has uh, to quote Mick Jagger a man of wealth and taste so uh worldliness there that that was one seed and then another seed was the beginnings of some tension that would be fully expressed on Sign of the Times, Another Lover Hole in Your Head, and Do You Lie, are expressing tension in his relationship with Susanna at that time, and that push and pull of we're great together, but there are problems here. So that that personal tension was expressed in the Parade album. There was not as tight of an overlap between the album and the movie on under the cherry moon parade as there was with purple rain.
0: It seems a very artful album and lots of percussion in lush sort of ways.
1: Mm. There were times Prince was very strategic or he's very tactical. And there were times where he uh, knew which audience he intended to court uh, And I think in the early days, the records that courted the critics and scholars both used the black and white, more artsy color scheme. Uh, And that was the Dirty Mind record. And then that was the Parade album as well.
0: What does eating healthy mean to you? From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast Radical for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: That's it's more of a New York record. It's more of a London and Paris record. It's we're going we're going for the critics and the scholars here. So we're trying something new artistically to see what we can get away with to see if we can reinvent ourselves, not as blatantly as or obviously as Madonna did, not. Going too far from your home base, but trying something new. Certainly, his look at that time reflected that he was going for an art crowd, not the rock crowd. Not at all.
0: Once a rich guy told me if you want to make money, you got to have people working for you. Otherwise, you're not really making that much money. You got to hire people to execute your vision, your dream, so that you can become rich. How do you do that? How do you hire the right people? Go to ZipRecruiter.com, right? ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, and with their matching technology, they scan thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience, and they invite them to apply for your job. It's so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site on the first day. Right, with results like that, you know why ZipRecruiter is the highest-rated hiring site in America. Right now, you guys can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com/tore. That's ziprecruitercom tour. Try ZipRecruiter for free. It's the smartest way to hire. Next, then you're working on Sign of the Times. Yes. So what is the seed of that?
1: I think it was the title track, Sign of the Times. Um, The color scheme is peach and black. Peach was Susanna's color. Black was his. uh, The tone of the record and the artwork is a little bit dark. Those were tough times because that's when uh, the revolution, he broke up with the revolution. So he's losing his friends, his family, by his own hand. He's the one who caused this to happen. But... Um And there were still tensions in, in his relationship that he was not resolved with. There was another thing going on that was as big, if not bigger than that. It was the clear realization that rap and hip hop were not just a passing fad, that rap and hip hop were now going to be the dominant musical art forms in the United States of America, and ultimately the world. And this is that Critical juncture for an artist where you have to decide, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to go out and hire some producers to write me a rap and hip hop record and let me just, you know, do the vocals on top of it and, and, and that way I can stay current and stay number one. Or do you say, no, that's not me. I can't, I can't do that. I have to stay true to myself despite knowing that I'm going to very soon sound outdated. And that was the choice he made. He made the choice to stay true to himself, to not make a run DMC record, (laughs) but to continue making Prince records. That has to be difficult for any artist to know that, I mean, you were on top of the world for a period of time, for a few years. You had all the money in the world. Everything you were doing was respected and loved and considered the best. And a few years pass, and you're not the best anymore in the grand scheme of what Americans wanted from their popular music. And it
0: was hard or was it hard for him because he is a virtuoso and he's looking at rap and hip hop and saying, they're not even playing instruments.
1: I know he he was smart enough and musical enough to recognize the validity of what they were doing. I remember a few things he said to us at the warehouse back in the around the world in a day phase. He said, when a woman comes along, does what I do, she'll rule the world. Madonna was right on his heels and was surpassing him. In the late 80s, Madonna's fame eclipsed his. And he was right about that. And then he also said, the future of music is bass and drums. He knew that was coming. He knew that was coming. He knew that what he meant by that is, the future of music is rhythm. So in the era of Ten Pan Alley, in the great American songbook, it was melody. And then in the era of the 60s, Bob Dylan and Joan Baez, and protest songs, Odetta. Oh, it, was, it was lyrics. It was it was lyrical content, but we'd passed those marks and now it was rhythm and rhythm has dominated popular music for decades now. We have by that I mean what we want are new rhythms. We're not interested in new lyrics. I wish we were because now's the time politically to be, you know, where are the poets? But we're we're really interested in new rhythms. We're not interested in new melodies we're not writing new standards these days. We are manipulating rhythm. That era appears to be changing, and it looks like now our new era is uh, sound design and, and new timbres. But Prince was smart enough to know melody won't be king in the coming years. Rhythm I, will.
0: I feel like I heard him say things that seemed to suggest he did not fully respect hip-hop. Is that wrong?
1: I, I wonder. I'm I'm skeptical of that impression because of the great tradition, especially among black artists, of calling each other out. Mm-hmm. You challenge each other. Mm-hmm. You diss each other. We diss each other to, to say, prove me wrong. Um, people here at Berkeley asked me about the Super Bowl performance with Justin Timberlake. And what about that feud with Justin Timberlake and Prince? Well, I know Prince well enough to know that when he teases Justin Timberlake and says, what do you mean you're bringing sexy back? Sexy never left. That's throwing down a gauntlet. That's saying, I respect you and like you enough. I think you're going to, if I push you, you're going to push back. And Justin Timberlake did his job. He knows that game. He pushes back and says, uh, well, if sexy never left, how come I'm on the top of the charts and not you? That's a friendly rivalry. (laughs) So when Prince publicly says uh, that he doesn't respect rap, or hip hop that much, I would really consider whether or not that's a true statement of his feelings or if that's a tactic, a a, a public tactic to, to see if he can get some pushback to give you, that pressure is going to give you something to push against. And that would have been valuable to him, more mm-hmm. valuable than what people thought of him.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the song side of the times does respond to hip hop. It does fit within the hip hop world of talking about the real world, complaining about the real world, telling the truth. And it's a little bit more, it's not, it's not a rap, but it's, it's, it's somewhere in between, right? It's not a full out singing, right? It's somewhere in between. Yeah, it's not his, vocal not
1: his traditional melody, not yeah. his traditional melody that you would learn on piano and play the chords to and, and sing along as a standard. And he was a genius with melody. So you're right there. I think he was using the external world as a metaphor or in parallel with his internal world. Sign of the times. Things are changing and there are serious things going on that he hadn't addressed lyrically. Serious things going on in the world and serious things going on with him personally. And I think it was a message saying, well, I, I think the subtext of that song is his internal world. The, the strife in his internal world.
0: So is he with Susanna at this time? It's breaking down?
1: It's breaking down. It's clear that um, it probably cannot be saved at this point.
0: And you see that affecting him.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, he 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 was clearly in pain. He was clearly in pain. And not wanting to admit that, um, you'd see it in his mannerisms, in his face, in how talkative he was. It, this wasn't the same guy as the one we'd worked with on uh, Around the World in a Day or Purple Rain. Um, he was darker and more serious and hurting. His movements were slower. He was he was slower.
0: I mean, it doesn't it, it's funny because you don't see the super sad songs that you might write. I think Parade has more of the sad songs and the sad feel than Sign of the Times. I think Sign of the Times is a little more the, the title song aside upbeat. I mean, there's there's strange relationship, but then there's Beautiful Night and there's Right. Yeah. I mean, even a door is a is an upbeat ballad. It
1: it is. uh, Some of those upbeat songs, and this is telling, had to be pulled out of the vault in order to complement the record. Uh, I could never take the place of your man. High energy song was pulled out of the vault. Um, It's going to be a beautiful night. Was recorded with the Revolution. That was an older song. It was recorded with the Revolution on tour when we were in Paris. his mood was closer to the cross, and sign of the times, and ballads. He, um, the 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 reason you got the look was such was such a huge hit. I think is because the amount of effort, focused concentration, and effort it when it took to to make that upbeat pop song. He brought in Sheena Easton to help add some of that energy to it. Now adore was. I'm 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 quite certain, because he was engaged to Susanna at that time, so, uh, of course, uh, n- no one knows the contents of a person's head, but I think I'm probably safe in saying that it was for her and about her. He was exclusive with her at that time, and he did say, he said in the control room, he wanted to win his R&B soul, his core audience, back. His, he wanted to be back on R&B radio, and that was a, a deliberate attempt to do one of those old-fashioned R&B soul ballads. He felt it. He meant it. Uh, if I was your girlfriend, though, that, that's the art side of Prince. That's the rebel, the punk in Prince. The art school kid who wants to rebel against that and say lyrics that might raise an eyebrow in more conservative communities. And what are you talking about? If I was your girlfriend, let me pick out your clothes. I mean, really? For you naked, I would dance a ballet? Come on. <laughs> so he, he, um, he was okay with that dichotomy.
0: And this is the... Camille period, where he's playing with the female alter ego. And that's a big part of If I Was Your Girlfriend.
1: Yeah, Camille wasn't necessarily female. As Camille was envisioned, it was actually, I think, just a name that popped into his head when he wrote the song and which is as a taunt to Jesse Johnson. Um, Camille, as he talked about it, was uh, you couldn't tell if Camille was dead or alive. Was it Camille a ghost or a living person? And you couldn't tell if Camille was male or female. So Susanna and I had done some drawings on notepads, and I remember there was a cartoon, and I put X's for the eyes, like. <laughs> It's just funny, like cartoons might do. And he he really got a kick out of that. He really thought that was funny. So this Camille character was just going to serve as an alter ego for another set of songs that wouldn't exactly be another whole band. He abandoned that notion, but we followed that train for a little while. Now, Sign of the Times didn't come together as a, as an, a visionary album, where the album was conceived of and then executed start to finish. Um, Sign of the Times was was something that um it was kind of plan B because plan A was to make a triple album and uh there was going to it was going to be uh, there was the dream, it was called Dream Factory at one point one point a little bit later it was Crystal Ball um but the label would not let him make a triple album because it's too expensive to manufacture and produce the profit margin would have been too small so they said no it was rare for the label to say no to Prince but they said no this time. And so we had to rethink what this album was going to be. Originally, it was more ambitious than what was ultimately released. So we had to cut it down to a double album.
0: Hmm. So w- can you say what the or- original songs were that formed it? And then and then before you, you know, that, that formed the that core, you talk about that sadness. And then you pulled other songs out of the vault to, you know, Make it a little brighter and happier, but.
1: Yeah, they were more upbeat songs. They were songs that, um, collectors would know, like Witness for the Prosecution and A Place in Heaven, the song A Place in Heaven, which, uh, ultimately appeared in, on the Black Album, uh, backwards. I can't pronounce it. Nivia, Mia, Kaupa, something like that. There were, um, songs like Crucial and, um, songs that he gave away to other artists later. Uh, like train, there were um, there were some of the things that appeared on *Sign of the Times*. Um, Strange relationship was one of them, but there were there were more dance pieces too, like *Dance Electric* and things we'd been working on for a while.
0: So, was the black album next?
1: The black album was never conceived of as an album. So, as we were working on. This whole batch of songs through 1986, as we're working on these songs, and that included some of my favorites like Sexual Suicide and Splash and all some of these great things. As we're working on that, um, at some point we had been at Sunset Sound for a long time and the mood was kind of somber and serious because we're working on an album and he knows it's going to be good. Um, Sheila had a birthday party coming up, or she had a birthday coming up, and he wanted to throw her a party. So he rented out, I think it was Flaming Colossus, or it might have been Vertigo, one of the big clubs in Los Angeles. He rented it out for private party for his crew that night, so we can, we can toast Sheila. And, um, he liked to dance to his own music at parties. So <laughs> we would do this when we were at home. Sometimes this was so much fun. It's hard to, hard to think of these days, but we would, um, we'd just do dance music, you know, just just knock them out, stuff to dance to. We could take it to Bernie Grunman, Grunman Mastering on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. Bernie would press us acetates. You take the acetates to the club, like First Avenue or wherever you're dancing, give it to the DJ and the DJ will play your fresh, fresh off the presses, unmastered work. Anyway, we stopped and did a lot of songs just to dance to at this point party. And we did. And we had, it was a great party. We had a, we had a great time. But after the sign of the Times record, um, didn't receive the, uh, attention in the press that Prince thought it deserved. And it did not necessarily win back his core R&B audience, his sole audience. Um there was some criticism that he had lost his funk, that he wasn't funky anymore, that he wasn't black enough. And as I understand it, because I was leaving him right at this time, that really stung, that hurt him badly. And he just had this knee-jerk reaction that says, not black, me not black, listen to what I'm doing and you tell me whether or not I'm black enough. So he put together something he called the Black Album and it's this funk stuff that he could do like in his sleep, and he was just about to release it when he realized, what am I doing? I've never done a reactive album. I've done proactive albums. I never make albums as a response to my critics. Have I lost it? What's wrong with me? So he went to yank it off the docks. Uh, some copies did get leaked, you know, and bootleg collectors had them and then ultimately it, w- it was released. But that's what that is. It's not a it's not a conceived of album. It's a, s- dance songs strung together. Cindy C and La Grind and stuff like that.
0: I mean, there's the the story about doing MDMA and taking it back, because what if this is my last gesture on earth and I want it to be a negative, and you're like, no, no, no.
1: Well, that might have, <clears throat> pardon me, that might have played into it, because right around that time, and I was no longer with him, but I was still in Minnesota, and I saw him a few times after we officially parted ways. Um, around that time, he was experimenting I'm going to choose my words very carefully so that I say only what I know. Uh, he he experimented with drugs. There were uh, there was a person in his circle who suggested that this would be a good idea for him, and he was in psychic psychological pain, and he tried it, more than once probably. Um, the song "Love Sexy" and Alphabet Street, the the on that on that album, reflect experimentation with things that make you feel you kiss your enemies like you know you should, and you jerk your body like a horny pony would. So he's experimenting, this phase, but I believe. That is if if that's that would only be part of the reason why he would have pulled the black album because we didn't make albums like that. Prince revered the art of the album and slapping together a bunch of songs as a response to your critics. That's not how Prince made records.
0: I mean, you know, w- we waited years to hear that album, and it was, you know, built up as. I think it's pretty weak.
1: It is weak. He knew that. He would do the, when something was actually really weak, he would hold up three fingers like a W, and that meant weak. So if we're working on something and he's not happy with it, if it's just not coming together, he would hold up the three fingers to me, and that meant weak, and that meant um, I had to take a Sharpie and on the tape box label, write a W with a big circle around it, which meant weak. Put that in the vault, and he would say to me, put it in the vault, and don't let me pull it out again. It's weak. So remember, these songs were purely utilitarian to dance to at a party. Cindy C. Is about Cindy Crawford, and she was an important model at that time. So this is a young man writing about a pretty girl. Le is just, oh, let me think of something that might be, you know, fun to dance to. Just silly stuff that he, he could do so easily. Not his deep, his deep thoughts. No, no. Craft, but, craft not art.
0: <laughs> definitely that I mean, you know, part of what is great about him in general is when he would talk about women it was not I'll conquer you. Right. It was not I'm yes. dominating you. It quite often in the story songs they get the better of right. him or they are more sexually uh, knowledgeable than yes. him. Yeah, that
1: was what made women love him so much. He truly saw us as equals. And not just that, he empowered us. In my job, in my role as his engineer, I will be grateful to him my whole life because he handed me so much responsibility and he never questioned it. He never micromanaged me. He never looked over my shoulder. He never took that responsibility away. He gave me a just turned twenty-seven-year-old technician from California the keys to his kingdom uh, in, in in the sense of, a, of his audio tech needs. Let me handle it. Um, that kind of empowerment. Um means that you've been recognized as an equal, you've been recognized as deserving. That attitude toward women of that the attitude that says sex is good for both of us, we both want this, we're going to share this experience, is, you'd be surprised, more rare than it should be. Uh His peers were saying things like, Here, Hey, baby, here's all the stuff I'm going to do to you. Here's what I'm going to do to you. Women get sick of hearing that. They just get sick of it. It's so one-sided. It's so egotistical. Like, yeah, flatter yourself. Go right ahead. You know, tell me just how great you are going to be. What does that do for me? Well, a prince was smart enough to recognize, I think you're great. I think there's things you could do to me that would blow my mind. Why don't you do this to me, please? I want you to conquer me. I want you to do this to me. How good is that? For a woman, it's pretty great. We, we loved him. He was easy to love.
0: Mm. What was the end?
1: For the two of us, um, it came when I was in, uh, we were, it was during a period where we were uncharacteristically apart, because we were normally together every day, because he recorded pretty much every day. But Paisley Park Studios had finally been built, the studios were, were open, and now he can have more than one room going, and he can have a staff of engineers So I was in Los Angeles. He had me go out to Los Angeles to do post-production on the concert film Sign of the Times. And I was working on that with a technician, a Hollywood technician who I'd known for a few years. And this technician and I got along really well, and he and I went out on a date. And that was my first date in four years because I'd been with Prince constantly. And it just so happened that Prince flew out from Minneapolis to Los Angeles the night I was out on a date. He gets to L.A., plane arrives at LAX. He tries to reach me and I'm not available. It was probably 11 o'clock or midnight, but he couldn't reach me. This is before cell phones, of course, and I refuse to wear a beeper. So I'm not in the hotel room. He can't find me. The next morning he was livid. So the next morning I met him on the Hollywood soundstage and got there in the morning. He he walks in, sees me, gives me the hook finger like, you, come here now. We go into a little vocal booth and we just went toe-to-toe. and. He was my boss, but that's a voluntary construct. Uh, I don't have to work for you and you don't have to employ me. We volunteer to work with each other and either one of us can break this pact at any time because this is a free country. So he pulled me into the room and we went toe to toe. And there were times when it was necessary for us to go toe to toe. He was not Prince, my boss, the rock star. He was the man and I was the woman. And we are two people, we are equal. And we went toe-to-toe, and he essentially said, where were you? And I said, I was on a date. And he essentially said, you can't do that. And I essentially said, I have to. You know, the time has come. I, I have to. I can't, I can't do this anymore. And I, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget his face. Um, because we both knew it was over. And we both knew it was kind of ending the way it began with me extending my hand out to him and saying, essentially, wait a minute, you're not going to get away with meeting me for the first time, telling me what you want done, giving me a to-do list and then turning on your heel and walking away. You're going to know me. I'm going to work for you really, really hard, but you're going to know my name and you're going to address me as a human being because that's what I'm going to do for you. So we started our very first face-to-face meeting was where I I wouldn't let him get away with not knowing my name and shaking my hand and looking me in the eye and this meeting was the same thing. Let's let's remember who we are. We're two beings who are equal under the sun and either one of us can break this pact at any time. And we just looked at each other as people and we recognized it's it's over now. That w- wasn't our last meeting, but it was that was the end of our relationship, our professional relationship.
0: What was the last meeting?
1: Last time I saw him, I saw him quite a few times, quite a few. I saw him half a dozen times at Paisley Park. After that, because clients would hire me to go to Paisley Park Studios and do some work, so I saw him. And there was one, a very touching moment a few months after um, we parted ways, where he pulled me out to, um, he had me come out to Paisley Park at midnight. And he told me, um, he asked me if I still loved him. And I said, yes, I, yes, I love you. And he said, I love you too. And it was really, really good. We really needed that. We needed to to say that, at you know, if if we're going to touch the bottom of this stream, what we're going to find at the bottom is the deepest love. Love and gratitude. And, and, and that's why I, I talk with you today and why I give interviews. Uh, I have so much love for him. And he was good to me. And I, and I know he did for me too. But the last time I saw him was probably 96 on tour with a, the band Gagita. We we had a show in Minnesota. So after our show, we went to Glam Slam and Prince was there. I just happened to run into him there. And it was so good to see him. And he invited me to go to New York with him that night. He said he was leaving for New York. And he invited me to go and I, I said, I can't, you know, I'm on tour with a band. I, I can't do that. I have, I still have dreams of him sometimes. And in every one, it's just it's it's warm and and it's I must say more than warm it's joyful. We experienced a lot of joy together. I was with him at a time where he got everything he ever wanted, but unfortunately, those things don't last. When you think about Prince, and you think about. He's almost at that period in his life. He's almost like a fantasy. So imagine you're a kid and you have a fantasy of being a rock star in your fantasy mind. Here's what would happen. You'd get signed to a record deal at a really young age, maybe as a teenager. You'd be given carte blanche to be your own producer. You don't need no stinking producer. You're going to produce yourself. You'd be in your fantasy mind. You'd be writing all these great songs. Check. You'd be playing all the instruments yourself. Check. You'd uh, be hugely successful. Check. There'd be a movie about your life. Check. You'd have tons of money check you'd have employees check got that you'd be enigmatic people would wonder who is this guy oh and you'd be really good looking and women would be crazy about you that's the fantasy right it came true and fantasies like that don't come true because little kids tend to have really impossible fantasies it did in this man but the world is just too complex this is not going to this isn't going to last Fantasies are are fantasies. And and even reality only occasionally imitates a fantasy life. He He had an extraordinary life, and he was an extraordinary American. He was an extraordinary musician. He was extraordinary by any means. He needed to come back down to the reality of being the man he was. He'll never be anything other than extraordinary, but even in his worst moments, he was better than most people ever will attain in a lifetime.
0: I love good Prince stories. Thanks so much to Susan for unlocking the vault. Speaking of the vault, she says there's some great songs in the vault, in Prince's vault. He made a song a day and didn't include all the best when he sequenced an album. He included all that fit with what he was trying to accomplish But there's some great gems still locked away somewhere. Maybe someday we'll get to hear them. Thanks to Susan for her time and thanks to you for listening. I'm on Twitter at Toray and on Instagram at Toray Show. Please stop by and say hi. And if you like the show, subscribe, rate, and review. It really does help. And talk about it on your socials. Let people know what's really good. Torre shows written by me, Torre, and produced by Chris Colbert and Chris Basil, with help from Shelby Royston, William Jolly, Candid Nicole, and Cadence 13 Studios, and photographs from Chuck Marcus. We're here to give you fuel to power your dreams, because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and I hope this show can help with that. We'll be back next Wednesday with more knowledge from amazing folks. Because the man can't shut us down.